From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, we take a deeper dive into Nikki Haley's presidential campaign with South Carolina-based AP reporter Meg Kennard. I'm Patricia Murphy. Republican lawmakers made Lucy McBath's re-election to the U.S. House much more difficult. But what if they've actually made her a stronger candidate down the road? I'm Greg Bluestein. A federal jury will soon consider how much Rudy Giuliani should pay for spreading pernicious lies about the 2020 presidential election. How that case could also factor into the Fulton County election interference case. It's Friday, so we'll dip into the listener mailbag to answer your questions. And we'll share who we think is up and down this week. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Let's start with this. The first voting in the 2024 presidential race is only about five plus weeks away. Now, Iowans will gather at caucus locations across the state to declare their choice for the GOP presidential nomination. We know that Donald Trump continues to lead polls in Iowa by a wide margin, but Nikki Haley's gaining ground in the state. Ron DeSantis is still polling fairly well. So we wanted to bring in truly one of our favorite reporters who is not on the AJC staff, (laughs) and that's uh, the AP's Meg Kennard, based in Columbia, South Carolina, where Nikki Haley, of course, is expecting to have good results uh, when the primary there comes up. But, of course, Meg, you also are traveling, covering primaries and caucus states around the country. So we're really grateful that you could be with us today. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It is such a treat, a good way to start my weekend. So I am really happy to be here. Oh, good. We should also point out that you and Greg Bluestein go back a very long way to the days when he, too, was an AP reporter. Meg, we started the same year, didn't we? We did. We started the same year. I've said it before. But, you know, if anybody really wants some way, way back machine dirt stories on Bluestein, just hit me up. (laughs) I will email you later, Meg. (laughs) So, Meg, let me start with this question. Um, As I said, you're uh, traveling, uh, covering uh, campaigns in Iowa. You're going to be in New Hampshire. But start by giving us a sense of how the people in South Carolina are responding to and feeling right now about their former governor's campaign for president. I will tell you, I was with Governor Haley last week. Um, Time is a flat circle. I think it was last week. But she was down in the low country in the Bluffton area and had a big campaign rally. And if that word means different things to different campaigns. But for Haley, this was literally the biggest event of her campaign so far, even bigger than her launch. There were more than 2000 people there, which for some campaigns, like maybe former President Donald Trump, that's not necessarily a massive number. But for her, it was the biggest that she's had. And I think that was kind of an indicator of some of the energy and excitement that campaigns really want to be seeing at this point in the cycle as those votes in Iowa are drawing closer and closer. So it was a good show of strength from Haley's home state. 
But let's not forget, this is all happening in the context of a campaign where Trump has remained dominant in a lot of these early states, particularly here in South Carolina. Campaigns always want to perform well on their home turf, and South Carolina is clearly a very early state importance place for a lot of campaigns. But in this cycle, it's, it is tough to have everything, you know, a home state candidate competing in an early primary state where Trump is still dominant and has support of the governor, a senator, most of the delegation, and, and lots of voters to boot. So we'll see. Meg, it does feel like South Carolina is a must win for Nikki Haley, because if she can't win at home, where can she win? I think we saw something similar with Newt Gingrich when he came to Georgia and did not uh, rate what he sure didn't win the Georgia primary. We can put it that way. Um, Has Nikki Haley changed that you've seen her over the time of her career from when South Carolinians would have known her as governor and then now that she's presenting herself as a candidate for president, does she feel like a consistent, um, consistent on message, consistent on personality and her core values? Or is this a different Nikki Haley than people met her the first time around? It is tough to consider that the last time South Carolina voters really had Nikki Haley on their ballots was nearly a decade ago. And in terms of demographic shifts, clearly we've seen a lot of voters come and go from the state. There have been influxes of voters in a certain you know, number of areas. And those are not people that had her as governor and really weren't as familiar with her from that standpoint. But, you know, there's always going to be some sort of evolution as candidates move through like the state house, the governor's mansion, go to the U.N. and now come back, run for president. That's that is a long arc of time. But when you go back and look at some of the messaging that Nikki Haley was using when she ran for governor, even the very first time in 2010, some of the verbiage is identical to what's happening in her stump speeches. I mean, like a lot of politics reporters out there, I've read her books, I've studied her speeches, I've looked at all of her media hits. And a lot of the way that she phrases things, particularly like on the issue of abortion, that's the thing that's popping into my head right now, her justification for why she views herself as pro-life is described exactly the same way now as it was back then. So that is a measure of consistency. Clearly, there are issues that kind of come up in you know the overall conversation about campaigns that are different than they were then. The issue of abortion is being handled differently now as compared to then when she as governor signed a 20-week bill, which at the time was the most conservative piece of legislation that South Carolinians that the legislators here could pass. Now we have a six-week bill. So clearly things have changed. Mm -hmm. But some of her approach to those issues does seem to be, at least in you know a couple of different categories, consistent. Meg, I want to ask you a question about Nikki Haley's relationship with her former political boss, Donald Trump. Of course, she served in his, in his cabinet and his administration after he elected president in 2016. On the debate stage a couple nights ago, we saw former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie call out the other Republicans for not being as critical of Donald Trump as he is. Have you seen Nikki Haley's dynamics with Donald Trump start to change? Is she starting to get a little punchier as these first caucus votes in Iowa approach? I think as she and some others in the campaign, like Ron DeSantis, um, are you know getting closer to actual balloting where they're going to be on the same list of candidates that voters can consider as the former president, they are starting to refine their messaging in terms of trying to differentiate why they should be picked as opposed to the former president, who clearly is very well known and, you know, has a lot of support in these places. 
Now we're hearing Haley. She did it, you know, kind of on the debate stage in some ways. I've heard it on her stump a couple of times in the past couple of weeks talking about Donald Trump as a chaos candidate. Chaos Mm -hmm. follows him. This is not the look that we as a nation need going into the next four years. So she is while she still talks about some positive things that they as part of the same administration worked on together, like she mentioned China trade policies during the debate. That's something she's talked about before. But then coupling that with a critique of Donald Trump in terms of also handling China, but not paying attention to security related issues and things like that. So, you know, she's kind of couching some of her compliments of what he did as president with criticisms that she proposes that she as president would opt to do something different on. But, yeah, we are in these closing weeks starting to see a little bit more of those dividing lines come from some of these other candidates that have been, a, if not complimentary of Donald Trump, at least a little bit more hesitant to take him on directly. Yeah, Meg, in fact, um, Nikki Haley's closing statement in the debate the other night uh, referred to the chaos of the Trump uh, uh, presidency and how she said it was a time to bring that to an end. And I was a little surprised uh, that she went there. I thought that was a relatively strong uh, uh, statement, and it'll be interesting to see if she expands on that moving forward. But let me could I let me ask you about you've been visiting Iowa and we know Patricia, of course, points out correctly that South Carolina is crucial to Nikki Haley. It strikes me that um, Iowa is crucial to Ron DeSantis, who has now said I visited all 99 counties in the state. He's courting the evangelical uh, 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 caucus goers in or who people he hopes will be caucus goers in Iowa, and it's a state that in many ways um, is favorable to his evangelical uh, beliefs. What are you seeing on the ground in Iowa? And and expand it beyond just Nikki Haley. Who do you see as building support to get people to turn out on on that cold, cold night that we're expecting on January 15th to actually uh, uh, take a corner of a room for one of the candidates or another? That's right. And I think one of the ways to look at this is, you know, we keep a political calendar, as most news organizations do, to see which candidates are going where on any given week or over the course of a month. And if you look at the events that Donald Trump has been scheduling in Iowa, for a long time, it was like, oh, the guy, he's not really out campaigning. He'll have an a la carte rally here or there, but he's not really being consistent. Week after week after week, he now has these commit to caucus events in Iowa. And, you know, they vary in terms of size or how many people are there, but it does on behalf of his campaign show a commitment to showing Iowa, I'm here, I'm, I want to, yeah, you know, I think you guys support me or at least a large portion of you do, but I want to encourage you to actually come out to caucus for me to sign these commit to caucus cards so I can, you know, at least internally see how many people I really have supporting me. We're, we're seeing today Nikki Haley holding an event there as well. And then AFP, Americans for Prosperity, the major group that's giving her some grassroots support, going out to start canvassing for her to really implement the, the support that they're giving her, the endorsement that she got and put that to work. So these campaigns are really, you know, they've been going to Iowa. Yes, Ron DeSantis completed the full Grassley. Vivek Ramaswamy <laughs> says he's going to have completed the full Grassley twice by the time the caucus happens. You know, we'll see how that translates for him. But even the, the, the top level, you know, the, the guy who's been leading in the state, Donald Trump, is going there more and more. 
and, you know, showing the the caucus goers, hey, look, I'm, I'm not just assuming that you're going to be behind me. I'm actually showing up. Meg, returning to South Carolina for just a minute, the Democrats and Republicans have split their primary days. Um, the Democrats have made a big play about going first in South Carolina for Joe Biden, because, in large part because he did so well there the last time around. The Republicans are going to go about three weeks later. Is that having any effect for voters? Do you feel like people know pretty well when these things are going to be happening and it'll be well publicized? Is it hard as news organizations to split those up as well? I'd love to hear a little bit more about that unusual dynamic y'all have for the first time in a while. Yeah, South Carolina traditionally, at at least in in sometimes, has had our presidential preference primaries on different days. Um, but it is interesting this year to see, you know, the Democrats nationally made a huge deal of changing the calendar, of putting South Carolina first, of making an argument for a state with more diversity and, and, and things like that. It's very interesting you point that out, though, because I had a conversation with a Democratic political strategist just a couple of days ago saying, look, I really don't feel like most South Carolina Democratic voters have any idea of when the primary is. And I think the strategist was saying that in, you know, not terms of like, yeah, we haven't put out news stories about it, but in terms of how there hasn't been a whole lot of excitement or campaigning Mm -hmm. or, you know, certainly President Joe Biden hasn't himself been campaigning here. The vice president has been here several times lately and really doing some of that political heavy lift that she has said she intends to do for the 2024 election. But you know, in terms of the average voter, I think they may have been aware, you know, in the past couple of years when the calendar was being discussed. But up until very, very recently, it hasn't on behalf of the state party really been a big part of the conversation. So it will be at least, you know, from my political nerd vantage point, it will be interesting to see exactly how many people start turning up or caring or, you know, expressing interest in that actual primary date, which the party hopes will give, you know, President Joe Biden a big boost in the very first votes for his reelect. We'll see. But South Carolina certainly did that for him in 2020 when he hadn't done so well in some of the other early states. And of course, there's a Georgia angle to that, too, because Democrats, Biden's administration wanted to move Georgia up on the calendar as well. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and other Republicans didn't (laughs) didn't hold that view in our primaries March 12th. Meg, I want to ask you, we're here with Meg Kennard, the Associated Press um, uh, South Carolina and national reporter who also has a new newsletter on Mondays. What's it called, Meg? It is called Ground Game. Ground Game. And she is the lead author of that. And now she gets to work weekends as well as <laughs> Monday through yeah. Friday. Nothing it, like you it. You say that as more. if I weren't already working weekends, Good right? Point. <laughs> Good point. Well, Meg, I want to ask you about Governor, uh, f- former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley's future. Because, you know, she is scrapping with Ron DeSantis and Chris Christie and whoever else to be the lead alternative to Donald Trump. Is there a path forward for her if those other candidates don't get out of the race? Because it doesn't look like DeSantis is moving anywhere anytime soon. It Obviously, we've got a couple weeks until we actually see the votes happen. And, you know, we often talk about how many tickets are there out of Iowa, meaning how many campaigns can really be viable after the caucus. Yes, it's just one state, but it's the very first one. And it's seen as pretty important. A lot of my colleagues say maybe three, you know, maybe there'll be three campaigns that really can be considered viable heading into New Hampshire and Nevada and finally coming down here to South Carolina. It, you know, but we have to think about this in the context of kind of where American politics is. And we are a country that for president has elected people well into their 70s recently as president. And now President Joe Biden is the oldest serving president in his early 80s. 
Nikki Haley's 51. So she potentially, if she wanted, if she doesn't make it this time and potentially wanted to run for president again, she could have several more cycles. She has served in a Trump administration before. If he were to win the 2024 election, there's already a conversation that I'm seeing of would she want to serve in the cabinet again? Is there another post? Could she potentially, like, potentially be secretary of state or something along those lines? I have no idea. I don't know whether she's interested in that or whether the Trump administration were it to become a thing in 2024, if they would be interested. But I think that she has options. Clearly, she would be term limited as South Carolina governor. She can't come home and run for that again. I will point out that Tim Scott, who was in this race before, another South Carolina candidate who ended his effort a couple of weeks back, he has said, I don't know if he'll hold to this, but he has said that he won't run for Senate again when his current seat, his current term would be up in 2028. That could potentially open a window for Nikki Haley to try for a Senate seat. I'm not exactly sure, but South Carolina does have a good track record of reelecting its senators for decades, as evidence sees yeah. for Talling. Strom Thurmond, Lindsey Graham has now been in office for a long time, too. So that could potentially be something she's looking for. We'll see. So I, I'd lo- love to throw out a question for all three of you, um, if I might. You know, Meg, you talked about how many tickets will there be coming out of Iowa Eric Tannenblatt, who's co-chair of Nikki Haley's National uh, Finance Campaign uh, uh, a Committee, uh, told us on the show a couple weeks ago he sees three tickets coming out of Iowa. And of course he does, because it's conceivable that Nikki Haley might come in third if DeSantis is able to draw that evangelical support particularly. But let me ask a different uh, question in terms of that. If Ron DeSantis has spent so much time in Iowa, not as much time, certainly in New Hampshire. I know he's been to South Carolina. If Nikki Haley comes in second in Iowa and they move to New Hampshire, where DeSantis is really not performing particularly well, according to the polls, I'd be interested in what all three of you think about his future. What does he do to try to revitalize a campaign? I think think if that were to be... Sorry. I think if if that were to be the situation, I think that those campaigns are going to be looking back to see what history tells them about candidates that have come in first in states like Iowa. I'm talking about you, Ted Cruz, you know, looking back to those campaigns and kind of seeing how the nomination battle ended up. Iowa is important. It brings with it momentum that head into those other early states. But you're absolutely right, Bill, that it's not necessarily, oh, okay, well, New Hampshire voters are going to look at Iowa and say, yep, that's who we're going to vote for. No, they are very proud of the role that they play and consider it to be very separate from the results of Iowa. So I think that, you know, the DeSantis campaign, were that to be the situation, would certainly be looking back and saying, all right, well, at least let's give it a try in this next state because they're not necessarily going to conform. I think that's such a great point. I think it would be a big part of his messaging as well to say you don't have to win Iowa to become the next president. History has has borne that out. Um, I think DeSantis specifically would probably try and hang on till Florida. You know, if he's got the money to do it, I think you want to hang on to your home state um, opportunity to really lay down a marker and maybe use that as a springboard. It didn't work for Giuliani in Florida, but, you know, <laughs> hope springs eternal. Yeah, and remember, Georgia's primary is the week after Florida's, mm-hmm. March 12th. But I think the, the in the shorter term, it raises the stakes in Meg's home state of South Carolina. It means that if Nikki Haley doesn't perform well, and I don't know if she'll, you know, e- even with the polls as they are now, even with Tim Scott out, you know, right, Donald Trump has a commanding lead, but if she doesn't have a strong showing, it will severely weaken her campaign. 
Um, all right. So, Meg, um, one last question. Um, you're, uh, you're spending some time looking at all the candidates. You've been in Iowa. Um, tell me about what you think you're going to see. What is New Hampshire looking like to you right now? Trump has the lead, of course, but again, that's a state where Nikki Haley is performing better, at least in the polling, than uh, DeSantis is. Um, but as you point out, you never know with New Hampshire voters. They're so independent in their thinking. Well, what's your sense of that state right now? They are very independent-minded and also tend to, at least compared to Iowa, these are just you know two separate entities, but compared to Iowa, Republican primary voters in New Hampshire tend to be a little bit more toward the middle. There's not as much of like that evangelical conservative Republican voter mindset that we think about when we're looking at Iowa. So in Nikki Haley, at least in some of the arguments that she's been making, that might appeal more to those voters. But also, let's not forget, New Hampshire is the place where Chris Christie has literally staked his entire campaign this time, as he did in 2016. He's going to be a factor there as well. We'll just see how it affects the top two results. I'm sorry. Greg, the other interesting thing about New Hampshire this time is the Democrats are not holding a primary on the same day that Republicans are um, because uh, President Biden wanted to reshuffle the deck. And what that means is that there is time for independent voters um, to decide to vote in the Republican primary there. And you would expect that they would be likely to be uh, inclined to vote for much more moderate candidates than a, certainly a Ron DeSantis yeah. or a Donald Trump. Yeah. Could that help a Nikki Haley? Could that help a, a Chris Christie? Any Donald Trump alternative? You know, some political scientists say these crossover votes have a more muted effect. We know here in Georgia, there were some crossover voters last year who helped Brad Raffensperger maybe helped Brian Kemp, but didn't help push them over the finish line. They they both won their victories on their own with Republican support. Um, but that is another factor we'll be watching in the next few weeks. I said independent voters, but Democrats can cross over and vote for one of those more moderate Republicans, Patricia. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that's made a big difference in a number of campaigns yeah. in the past, yeah. particularly if one of those campaigns um, is a lot more competitive than the other. Uh, there's a lot less incentive to stick with your home with your home party. Meg Kennard, we are in for a really exciting 2024, and I, I envy you because you will be out there on the front lines, as will Greg Bluestein. I suspect Patricia Murphy will be out there quite a bit as well. Um, so we're looking forward to a big year, and we would love to have you come back and join us uh, on occasion to uh, share with us what you're seeing on the campaign trail. Meg- you guys call me anytime. I just can't promise that I won't be shivering with frostbite if it happens to be in the, <laughs> oh. the first couple of weeks in January. We Southerners up there, yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you, we know those cold, dark nights in Iowa taking out those caucus locations. It's not fun. But anyhow, Meg Kennard, thank you so much for being with us uh, today. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm interested in hearing um, your observations, Patricia, which you reported in a column this week. And let me set it up for you. We know that Georgia Republicans 
have now met the deadline that Steve Jones, Judge Steve Jones set for uh, turning in the new maps. I didn't realize that when he said he wanted them by February, uh, by, by December 8th, he met midnight <laughs> on, uh, uh, on this date, and they met that deadline. Um, we don't know, of course, whether the maps, in fact, uh, create the kind of fair representation that Judge Jones says has been lacking in the existing maps. But you had a really interesting column the other day. We know that Lucy McBath's 7th District looks now to be unwinnable uh, by a Democrat, and that means Lucy McBath has to think about her future. You suggest that in the long run, the Republicans may have done her a sort of a backhanded favor. Explain what you meant by that. Well, she has already said she's going back to Washington next um, next Congress. That is not on the table for her to not mm-hmm. run again in some capacity. It certainly doesn't look like. But down the road, we do have um, an open governor's seat in 2026. There will be other statewide opportunities down the road as well. And in looking at where her district's have been and where they where it could be if she were to run in that sixth congressional district, she will have covered um, about half of the physical territory of Metro Atlanta between um, West Metro Atlanta, Northwest Metro Atlanta, kind of that Cobb County area, and then Northeast Metro Atlanta with that with her uh, Gwinnett County district right now. Um, so by by forcing her to pick up and move um, her her campaign and her messaging and her community events and her um, mailers, et cetera, et cetera, they, they will have, if this, ha- you know, this is all hypothetical. Of course. <laughs> they, they will have inadvertently tripled the number, although there's some overlap, tripled the number of people who will have said, Lucy McBath is my congresswoman. Some of them won't even know that she's not their congresswoman anymore. So for a statewide run down the road, she's getting a lot more exposure yeah. than your average member of Congress. You you picked up at the Capitol a really interesting word that you used in your column for what what may have happened to Lucy McBath. What do you call it? It's called dummy mandering. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, both parties have done it. It's when you are drawing one person out of their seat only for that person to come back at you. A little bit like the missile in the hunt for Red October. <laughs> it's launched off the bow and then it turns around and comes and attacks you. Um, Sonny Perdue is a good example of this as well. Somebody who uh, started to see his own opportunities declining uh, and then decided, well, you know, eventually I'm just going to become a Republican and then run statewide. And look, it ends up strengthening uh, some of these candidates in the long run. Here's the statement that Lucy McBath sent yesterday our way. This is a quote. I will not let an extremist portion of the state legislature decide when my time serving the people of Georgia is through. I will come back to Washington. So that is Lisa McBath saying she's going to run no matter what for Congress. She has not ruled out a 2026, 2028, 2030, who knows, run for future higher offices, but she's running for Congress. And we heard on this air yesterday on Politically Georgia, Jerrica Richardson, Mm. a Cobb County commissioner who's already announced a candidacy, a Democrat who's already announced candidacy for the U.S. House saying, look, I still want to run for U.S. House, but I will not 
challenge any incumbent. So that takes one major player off the deck if there is uh, a com- com- contested Democratic primary in the U.S. House. Yeah, somebody I talked to about this was um, former Congressman John Barrow, who what, <laughs> himself had to run in multiple different districts and then eventually ran for, sta- run, ran for statewide office. He did not win that statewide office, but he came very close. He outperformed uh, Stacey Abrams in a number of counties, 130 counties specifically, including the ones where he had been running um, TV ads for years and years, but all across the the areas that he had been a member of Congress, which were different areas over the course of a number of different redistrictings. And he said he did think it made him a much stronger statewide candidate. Now, listen, he did not want to get redistricted out of his seat. Lucy McBath does not want to have to run in a totally separate territory if that's what she ends up doing. They don't want it to happen, but there is an unintended consequence that you have now exposed this person to more voters. And people have a lot of affection for their own member of Congress. Uh, the, 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 the issue is at the same time that in a new district, Lucy McBath is likely to face who knows how many other Democrats, if they see an opportunity district, are going to want to run in a primary against her. I mean, I realize she's been a very popular um, elected official in this state, but nobody wants to run in a prime, a contested primary, especially if it's a crowded one. No, no one does. But look at her history. You know, this is someone who is a former flight attendant. Who, of course, her, we we know the story of the tragedy that happened to her teenage son Jordan Davis when he was gunned down in Florida. It helped galvanize her to become a voice for gun safety laws, what she calls common sense gun control. Um, and you know, I I look back to 2018 mm-hmm. when. We all thought, including me, I had been talking with her for and her and her advisors for weeks. I thought she was running for state legislature because she was at she first. Was. And then the very last minute, and Lucy McMath told me in, in several interviews, basically she spent the weekend praying about it, locked in a, a room in her house, just thinking, you know, vigorously about what 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 her next step should be. And instead of running for state legislature, at the last minute she decided to run for the U.S. House. She didn't even tell a lot of her friends, her neighbors, her family members that decision until it was already made. She ends up beating Karen Handel, the Republican incumbent, in the same district that John Ossoff had lost a few months earlier in that famous special right. election. So beats Handel, beats her again two years later for a comeback bid, then gets drawn out of her district, beats Democratic incumbent Carolyn Bordeaux. Yep. This is someone who's not She's to be strong. Yeah. Okay, um, I'd never heard the term dummy mandarin until I read it in your column, Patricia, but I want to share with you one of the great classic examples of dummy mandarin in this state. Back in the early 90s, then Speaker of the House Thomas B. Murphy, the all-powerful speaker, wanted to get rid of Newt Gingrich. <laughs> and he drew Gingrich out of his district, made, forced him to run in what was then the, the boundaries of the 7th district, right? 7th district. I think so. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, was a Republican district at the time. Not only did Gingrich move into that district as a candidate and win, it was the beginning of his ascension to become Speaker of the United States House. And that had long-ranging <laughs> historical ramifications for President Bill Clinton as well. And there's a story of dummy mandarin actually related to Lucy McBath more recently. Uh, Governor Nathan Deal was no big fan of Tom Price. And so made his district not, not winnable for Democrats, but slightly more difficult for Tom Price to win, redrawing a little more Democratic-leaning territory into that. 
which ended up becoming, of course, when Tom Price stepped down to serve in Tr Donald Trump's cabinet, <clears throat> it made that John Ossoff versus Karen Handel race that much more competitive. And of course, Lucy McMath ended up winning that seat. All right, let's let's look at a couple of other stories real quickly. Um, one of them is um, Rudolph Giuliani will be back in a federal court in Washington on Monday. He's uh, been sued for defamation by Ruby Freeman and her daughter Shay Moss because he accused them com with completely, not only no evidence, with dummied up evidence uh, that they had tried to insert uh, fake ballots into the Fulton County elections uh, counting system. And um, a judge has already found that he's guilty of defamation. Uh, now the question is going to be, how big a penalty will he pay? What will uh, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman stand to gain from this defamation? And we remember, Patricia, what, what hell they went through as a result of these accusations. They had to shut down their business. They had to leave their homes. Um, they had people, some of whom are def defendants in the conspiracy case, coming to their house saying that they were going to be arrested. Uh, for election uh, uh, violations. But the problem is going to be Rudolph Giuliani doesn't apparently have a whole lot of money that he'll be able to turn over to them depending, despite the reward. That's exactly right. He's not even paying his own lawyers, so it's hard to see what kind of a settlement anybody could get out of Rudy Giuliani. But I think it raises um, a lot of really, really important questions. Now, Rudy Giuliani, for, first of all, even to even to this day, he still says... He did nothing wrong. He yeah. said he had, you know, this is all a bunch of legal mumbo jumbo. He had to do this, but he didn't really do anything wrong. Um, but because all of these statements were made over the course of uh, kind of the the relitigation of a political campaign in the political speech context. Um, can you go back and sue somebody for defamation? Yes, that has been established. And then what does that look like as a consequence? I think this has huge, huge ramifications way beyond Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, they're seeking millions of dollars in, in, in damages, and you're right, they might not get any of those, but it could have consequences down the line. Um, it could uh, deter new efforts to delegitimize uh, our elections in Georgia, but also it also factors into the ongoing case in Fulton County, the election interference case. Anything said in open court could be used in that trial as well, and it could help further press some of those defendants who are directly involved, uh, what prosecutors say, directly involved in pressuring um, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss and intimidating, harassing her, could push them towards a potential uh, legal settlement. Okay, one last thing, and we've got to do it fairly quickly because we need to get to our final break. Greg Bluestein, um, there's been a lot. There's been a lot of reporting by any number of news organizations on Donald Trump's plans should he be reelected. His authoritarian government, which he apparently uh, is moving to establish, should he win, and a really fascinating name emerged this week for someone who he might put in a high-profile position, who also happens to be. A defendant in yeah. the Fulton County conspiracy We're not talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene, whose name has been out there yeah. for a long time as a yeah. potential running mate. This is Jeffrey Clark. He is a defendant in the election interference case. Uh, in, among the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the things he had done that were under scrutiny of prosecutors is <clears throat> drafting a letter to be sent to Georgia election officials, urging them to uh, say that there was fraud in the, in the 2020 election. He is a former assistant attorney general, and he has seen, and this is according to Axios reporting, but also Washington Post and some other outlets have referred to this as well. He is seen as a, t a contender for a top Justice Department slot if Donald Trump wins uh, his comeback bid. And, of course, 
Patricia, there was talk back during the uh, uh, the transition period uh, in, in early January that Trump actually was looking to appoint him as attorney general at the time, but was shut down on that by others in the White House who said, you cannot do that. That's exactly right. And I do think this is the kind of reporting and the kind of information that the campaign is putting out there that really does hurt his chances of getting elected. In 2016, when he was elected, he promised to have the best and brightest as his cabinet. And he would have the CEOs of the biggest companies come in and take over Treasury. He would have um, the greatest uh, kind of the greatest diplomats come in and be the Secretary of State. He promised a really different looking administration that I think was very attractive to people who thought, well, sure, why not? That all sounds great. To have somebody who is so a loyalist, who was willing to help you overturn the election, including here in Georgia, he's indicted here in Georgia. I think that is a problem even for voters who liked his policies. They're not going to like this idea. Well, we should at least say as we take our break that at least he's promised Sean Hannity that he's only going to be a dictator on the first day of his potential administration. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Morning Jolt newsletter, and now we have the new Politically Georgia PM Update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia Newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash Politically Georgia Newsletter. Okay, Greg Bluestein and Patricia Murphy here on Politically Georgia. It's time for one of our favorite segments, the listener mailbag. Janie B., what have you got for us today? Oh, man, you know, the calls just keep coming in. And by the way, the number to the Politically Georgia call-in Hotline is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Call 24 hours a day, and we have a team of specialists standing by those phones every day, ready and willing to take your calls. And we'll start off today with Jay from Atlanta. He wants to know what might happen should a President Trump be convicted. Hello. Just want to say I'm a big fan of the show. I've been listening to y'all for about the last two years. So my question is, if Donald Trump wins the election, but is also indicted in Fulton County, has uh, has Fulton County or the state of Georgia worked out a uh, situation for tax purposes for housing such a high profile inmate, either during the campaign or uh, during his presidency? Uh, if, if they figured out anything? Greg Bluestein, I thought the question was going to be what would happen? Could he serve in the White House? 
it's an even more interesting question. Where does he go to prison? Yeah, and there is, look, Fulton County Jails already has enough problems. <laughs> there, there is a, a proposal for a billion-dollar-plus new facility that just got floated out again this past year. But look, this opens a whole cornucopia of questions because, you know, a few months ago, a few years ago, we might have thought of this as unimaginable, but you know, these unheard of like scenarios are entirely possible with a elected president facing trial in Fulton County. What happens to that trial? We know that Donald Trump could pardon himself in a federal uh, conviction, but the state is a lot more tricky. Um, I've said before, uh, you know, judging by legal analysts that there's little he could do to stop Fulton County DA's prosecution, but other very smart people are saying, no, there's lots he can do to stop Fulton County DA Willis's prosecution of him if he's elected president. Jay, it's a really interesting question, I have to say. Greg and I were both there when Donald Trump uh, drove into the Fulton County Jail uh, for the first time to turn himself in. And the amount of security, the amount of total lockdown that was required within an entire half mile radius was so extreme, even for a former president, let alone a sitting president. He had a motorcade of uh, about 60 different vehicles. So the idea of him being at the Fulton County Jail in that moment seemed absolutely out of this world, even for the 30 minutes that he was there. The idea of him actually serving time in the jail, whether or not he could pardon himself. Uh, many people say he can't pardon himself, um, but there's even some debate about that. No surprise. Uh, but the idea of him <laughs> Serving time in that jail made me think that uh, home detention might be a lot more likely. <laughs> well, he would have to have his Secret Service detail with him mm-hmm. the whole time. How do you do that in jail? Well, I, somebody from the Department of Corrections who's listening can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think the first thing that happens, like all state uh, convicted state prisoners, he goes to the Georgia Diagnostic Center in Jackson, where they evaluate what prison he should actually end up being sent to. <clears throat> it's just astonishing to think, as you've really basically said, Patricia, what could happen to a former president. The other quick interesting thing about this is we learned this past week that the Republican National Committee has no fallback position should Donald Trump be convicted um, and be the nominee of the party. They've not thought apparently this through in any way. Well, I don't think that Donald Trump's own voters have really thought it through. I don't think they care, to be well, honest with no, you. No, no, but do you the mean? Republican National Committee taking, accepting him as a, the ongoing candidate for the, uh, for, of the Republican Party. So, All right, mm. let's do this. One more. Uh, can we get to one more quick question, Shaney B.? Let's do it. Thanks for that call, Jay. Next up is Linda from Peachtree City with a question about abortion rights. Is there any chance that there could ever be a referendum at codifying abortion rights in Georgia? Thanks. Yeah, um, look, it'd be a constitutional amendment in Georgia that needs two-thirds of the legislature's support, which is not likely to happen, especially with Republican control of the state legislature. But Georgia is one of 24 states that do not have the power of initiative and referendum. That means Georgia citizens cannot qualify a ballot measure through collecting signatures. So it would be up to the state legislature to put something like this on the ballot, meaning that you need two-thirds of support. And then, of course, for it to be passed as a constitutional amendment, it would require uh, a majority of voters in a referendum. And given the current makeup of the General Assembly, 
dominated by Republicans. That's certainly not going to happen under this scenario because it could be potentially very, very damaging to a sitting Republican to have that on the same ballot where they're facing re-election. All right. Thank you to our listeners for continuing to send us really fascinating questions. Okay, Patricia and Greg, it's time for what, Patricia, you call your favorite segment because it's time first for retribution. Who's down this week in your book? Well, this is not retribution. I was kidding, of course. of course. My who's down this week are the eight lawmakers in the state house who were drawn into races against each other. We have four incumbent on incumbent races after redistricting. Uh, there was hope at the beginning, hope springs eternal, that those uh, districts could change slightly and, and maybe they wouldn't have to run against each other. They did not change. So those lawmakers are now in uh, contests against some of their closest friends in some cases. My who's down are Georgia Democrats at the state capitol, not only because those districts were redrawn in ways to preserve Republican majorities and imperil Democratic incumbents, but also because Republicans forced votes on Israel, on the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, that to some Democrats could come back to haunt them in next year's election, forcing them to either take a stand or, as many did, take a walk. My who's down is Vivek Ramaswamy. I said that with four people on the stage, it was still one too many because he would be as obnoxious as Chris Christie said he would be when Meg Kennard said he's done the double uh, Grassley. He's done all 99 Uh, counties of Georgia twice, it seems to me that guarantees he's not going to get very far in the Iowa caucuses. Greg, who's up? My who's up is the holiday of Hanukkah. Sometimes I can be a Hanukkah Scrooge myself because of the the tortured history of Hanukkah from eons ago. But uh, it's getting new meaning right now. I think we could all use a little bit more light right now with all that's going on in our world. Mine is State Representative Lauren Daniel, who brought her baby Zane, her infant baby Zane, was literally strapped to her the entire special session. She has a baby. She had to go to work. She did them both at the same time. I salute you, Lauren Daniel, and Sally Harrell, who was the first woman to do it in Georgia. Well, if you don't mind, I've always said the same about you. It's amazing how you balance your work as a mother and All you do at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. All right, my who's up this week is Grady Hospital. DeKalb County has now voted to give, as it must, $43-plus million for its share of supporting the hospital. Fulton County and and, uh, DeKalb uh, are are responsible for that. But they've also added a condition that if uh, Medicaid is expanded to the entire state, they will no longer have to make contributions, so they're going to be lobbying hard for that. But Grady Hospital is a remarkable resource for the people, not just of Atlanta, but the whole state of Georgia. So it's always good that they're getting their funding. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE weekday mornings at 10. Or look for Politically Georgia, as you already do in your favorite podcast app, sometime around 1 o'clock each afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. 
AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.